If you have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to Psalm 23. That's where we're picking it up here together this morning. We're in Psalm 23, easily the most recognized psalm in the Bible. Some would say this is one of the most recognized, if not the most recognized work of poetry in the history of mankind. And and we're going to jump in here together in Psalm 23. So would you just stand with me, uh, if you will, and let's set our hearts to hear from the Lord in his word to us uh, today. This is Psalm 23, starting there in verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, would you open our eyes this morning to see you, to see your son? Would you give us ears this morning to to hear your voice, to hear your word? Would you send your spirit now to fall afresh on us today? That we might be, that we might be awakened out of the slumber. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us that you'd help us to hear you, and that you'd help us to walk with you in this life. Uh, Strengthen us for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As we jump into uh, Psalm 23 this morning, one of the things that I've wrestled with uh, this week in preparation, like something that's created a bit of tension in my heart as I was reading and praying and studying, and even as I was trying to think through what the Lord is saying to us in this passage and what he would have us hear this morning, what I've been struggling with really is, is the familiarity of this psalm. And what, and what I mean is simply that, like this is a psalm that you probably know. It's one that you've probably heard. So compared to Psalm 143, that was what we were in last week and somebody was honest enough to come up to me. It was the sweetest, uh, sweetest confession ever. They, I've never heard that psalm before in my life. And I thought, you know, I, I was both encouraged and also like, well, we got to get on a Bible reading plan or something. But, but it, there's an honesty to that. And I appreciated that so much. But compared to that, Psalm 23 is just sort of out there, right? It's, it's like, it's around. It, it, it's, almost, it's like it's in the wind. And if you live long enough, you'll eventually just encounter it. And so we've heard it and, and we're familiar with it. And the danger of familiarity is that we get so comfortable with something, we get so close to it, so used to it, that, we, that what happens is we begin to take it for granted. We begin to assume it. And so for some of us, right, some of us who've grown up in the church, some of us who've been around the rhythms and patterns of faith, who've been around the Bible, we can come to a passage, we can, we can come to a passage like Psalm 23 and just sort of assume it. It's like, it's like walking through your house in the dark. You know what I mean? Like, like you, 
you sort of, you're sort of half awake. You're just trying to get down to the crying baby's room. And, and you don't need the light because you've walked those steps thousands of times before. That's the danger of familiarity. And I'm convinced that's the danger that we have here. It's that we'll come to Psalm 23 without, without any real sense of the need we have for light. We'll come to Psalm 23 with all our familiarity and ultimately... We'll tune out. We'll sort of check out and, and we'll disengage from what's happening. And, and so I found myself trapped in this tension of being in the depths of the familiar with a desire to hear the Lord speak. Like that's been the tension in my heart this week. And I want to confess that as I've come to these verses over and over, the thing that keeps coming to mind is something we say here a lot and something that our elders, as we gathered last week, we met last week, our, the session of this church, the elders of this church, and we prayed for all of you last Sunday as we met together. And we come back to this reality a lot that everyone who walked in here this morning, every single soul in this room this morning, whether it's your first visit and if it is, man, we're glad you're here. Or if you've been here since we were first meeting in that kind of nasty gym over on the other side of Lexington, the reality is that every one of us is carrying some sort of hard and often hidden burden. Like that's what we come in here with. And some of us feel alone in that. Like some of us do. Some of us feel overwhelmed in that. The fallen reality of this world brings, brings things like loss and it brings betrayal and it brings like the shattering of dreams. It brings all that stuff with it. And some of us are sitting here today just afraid. Here's what it is. We're afraid that whatever this battle is right now is going to sort of define the rest of our days. Like we can't see an end to it. It just seems like it's gonna be like this is what life is. Is. And what I would say to you today is that that, that place right there, is precisely where Psalm 23 comes and meets us. It's on this pilgrim journey of life, right? In the mess, with the fear that God has come to us in his word. And the, fami- and the familiarity of the word must not rob us of being gripped by the word. And there are three ways that Psalm 23 meets us in the mess. The first is that life with God means never being without. The second is that life with God means never being alone. And the third means that life with God means never being forsaken. Those are the three things we're looking at here in Psalm 23. Today, I make no pretense that this is the first time you've ever heard a sermon on Psalm 23, or even that this will be the best sermon you've ever heard on Psalm 23. But those are the three things, never without never alone, and never forsaken. And so would you do this? Would you look back at verse one with me? Those first words there are critical. Here's what David writes. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. Okay, so that's personal, right? The Lord is my shepherd. One of the stories about the gathering of the Westminster Assembly, that's where we get the Westminster of Confession of Faith. It's where we get our larger and shorter catechism, these, these, these summaries of the doctrines of the Christian faith. And one of the stories is about how they came up with the answer to the question, what is God? That was one of the questions that like somebody was like, we got to answer that. What is God? And they all went, uh, it's a good one. And they kind of debated it for a while and they were getting tired. And as they were taking a break, they called on one of the members of the assembly to, to pray. And the legend has it. I can't confirm whether this is true or not, but the legend is that as he began to pray, he went, 
He went, Father in heaven, you are, you are infinite, you're eternal, you are unchangeable in your being, you are wisdom, you are power, you are holiness, you are justice, you are truth. And everybody kind of went, that's it. That's the answer to the question. Like that's how we define what is God. That's the answer we have in our shorter catechisms. Catechism is a beautiful sort of academic definition for what God is. It, it answers that question with some clarity. But for the psalmist, okay, for David here, this man, this real man who finds himself in the darkest valley of this broken world, he is not so concerned in this moment with what God is, but who God is. Who God is. And the who is far more concerned with relating than it is with defining. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. It's not that the Lord is a shepherd, though that would be true, right? I mean, by definition, if the Lord is my shepherd, he must and shall be a shepherd. But again, the point here is not what God is, but who God is. This is a defining not of the nature of God, but of the nature of his relationship with God. And this shepherd imagery is it's not unique to Psalm 23. Back in Genesis 48, some of you will remember this, we, we walked through Genesis in the year 2020, which was an appropriate year for Genesis. And, and so in Genesis 48, as Jacob is blessing Joseph, right? They've been reunited in Egypt. He's reaching the end of his life. And it says that he blessed Joseph and said, here's what Jacob said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. So there's this shepherd theology that exists with God. In Isaiah 40, speaking of the greatness of God, speaking of the greatness of the Lord, the prophet tells us that he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. So this idea of the Lord as shepherd is not unique to Psalm 23, but what we want to understand is the personal element to it. I love how Spurgeon said this. Charles Spurgeon points out that the way, that what David is saying is that is that if he be a shepherd to no one else, he, meaning God, is a shepherd to me. It's that personal. It's this personal reality that's going to shape everything that comes after it. And so it's not just that God is a shepherd, but that he is my shepherd. What we're seeing statistically in the church is that so often, like for so many and this isn't one of those encouraging statistics, by the way. But what we're seeing is that for so many, what we call faith in Jesus is, is often little more than a, than a premise that we agree to, rather than a relationship that we enter into. It's part, of what, it's part of what's led to what's being called like the great exodus from the church that we've seen in this post-COVID age. It's that people agreed to something but they didn't belong to something. And David's not having it, man. And it all begins with his relationship. He begins with this relationship about who he belongs to. It begins with this relationship between him and the Lord. It's about belonging to the Lord. So the Lord is my shepherd. That's the relational reality. And here's what flows out of that. He says this. He says, I shall not want. 
He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. N- notice how passive David is in all of this. Did you, did you notice that? Even as we were reading how passive David is in this, this thing that really stands out is that God is the active one, right? The Lord is the one moving. David is being made to lie down. He's being led by still waters. He's being restored. It's the Lord who is leading and providing. One of my good friends, he restores old cars all the time. It's like his favorite habit. In fact, if you, if you have like a really old car sitting in your driveway, don't be surprised if that guy just pulls in one day and asks to buy your old rusted up car because he loves it. It's like his, it's his thing, okay? And what he would tell you is in the restoration process, that car, it doesn't help at all. <laughs> it doesn't do anything. In fact, everything that it does in its passive nature makes it more difficult. Like, could you just raise up that front end for me for just a second? The car is like, fundamentally, no, I will not do anything to help you. I'm completely passive. And that's kind of the idea that we see right here. It's our, that's the nature of our relationship with God. We are the old rusted car that doesn't do anything to help itself. And God comes and he restores our soul. We've, we've seen in the last few Psalms that we've walked through, we've seen David crying out to the Lord in his need, not crying out in pride, not crying out in confidence, other than the confidence that God will answer. He's crying on his need, crying out in distress, calling out his desires, even in the midst of fear and anxiety. That's where David runs. And these are spiritual realities that we carry with us each day, right? We all do in our desire for comfort, in our need for, for acceptance, our need for approval, in our fear of never being enough. It's over and against the cry of the world, the cry that there's never enough, right? Never enough time, never enough money, never enough sleep, whatever it is that we're chasing after in this world, what these verses, these opening verses tell us is that contrary to the lie of the world that you can get everything you want and constantly constantly find yourself feeling let down, always find yourself coming up short, always find yourself hungry for more. What Psalm 23 tells us is that there's something more than this world and that life with God means never being without. Against the cry of never enough, we find David crying out that with the Lord, we're never without what we ultimately need. It's just, that's, it's just as a shepherd, just as a shepherd supplies all the needs of his flock, so the Lord supplies all the needs of his people. Now look at verse four with me. This is a famous verse and it's loaded with meaning and, and we don't have the time and one message to hit every, to, to mine the depths of this psalm. But here's one thing that we see in here. Here's what David says. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We, we often joke about about people suffering from FOMO. You know this thing, right? I mean, like even parents of toddlers are like, yeah, he's got FOMO. And I'm like, I remember, I distinctly remember somebody saying that to me one time in the hallway back here and me nodding in agreement and going, what does that mean? And then Caden straightened me out, which was great. It's the fear of missing out. That's a pretty common thing in our world, right? We all kind of suffer from this fear 
of missing out. And it's only been intensified in the age of like social media, right? When we're constantly like inundated with pictures of people uh, at their absolute best doing absolutely amazing things, right? If you ever notice that, like the idea of travel bloggers, anybody like that, the whole idea uh, riding around in vans, taking beautiful pictures was something like nobody could have imagined just a few years ago. If I tried to explain that to my grandmother today, she'd think I'd lost my mind, right? That somebody is going to live in a van and take pictures of everything they do. And I bet, yeah, and they get paid to do that, evidently. I don't know. I guess Instagram pays them to do that stuff. I have no idea how that works. They would find it utterly ridiculous, and yet here we are, okay? But there's a more prominent and far more destructive fear that has gripped humanity ever since the fall in Genesis 3. It's been around ever since that first fractured relationship. And here's what it is. It's fear of being alone. Phoba doesn't sound quite as cool as FOMO, but it's, it's, it's there. You can look it up. Phoba is a real thing. Back in 2020, Psychology Today published a study out of the University of Toronto. And by the way, so if it's in Canada, those are like the friendliest people on planet Earth, right? So keep that in mind, all right? That the people of Canada, out of, out of those who were surveyed, 40% of those responding said that they fear alone being in the world, that that is one of their apex fears in life, is that I'm going to be alone in this life. And what we know is that those fears are only heightened. They're only amplified during times of stress and times of struggle. But what David, now come back to Psalm 23, what David, a man who's, who's literally been hunted, I mean, that's different. A guy who's hidden in caves so that people did not kill him. What he has come to know is that even when, and maybe especially when, like maybe especially when things are difficult, that's when the Lord makes his presence known. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So that is his condition. That's where he's at. That's his environment. It's the place of darkness. Uh, it's, it's a place of darkness even during the daylight hours. We often think of this in terms of dying. In fact, that's, I've never done a funeral or a memorial service where we didn't read Psalm 23. That's, that's one, but one of the reasons is because we think of this in terms of dying. The valley of the shadow of death. That's one of the reasons often shared with those who are nearing death as a means of comfort. And so often it's used as a means of comfort for those who've been left behind by those who have gone before us. And, and it's certainly appropriate for that. But, but that, if we're not careful, that can also kind of diminish, diminish some of its depth. That, that's one reason uh, my, my former Hebrew professor, he prefers a different translation here. He translated it as the darkest valley. He says, even though I walk through the darkest valley. It's very similar to the way we sang Psalm 23 here today. Darkness like death. You see, that sort of broadens the application. And so when our hearts are broken, right? When, uh, when the memories of trauma and suffering are washing over us and we can't seem to shake it. When our child is sick. And we can't find the solution. When we've sinned, how about that one? How about when we have sinned, when we have gone astray and the fallout of that sin feels too heavy? How about in the addiction? How about in the storm, in the wreckage? And yes, even when our days are coming to an end, in the darkest valley, in the valley of the shadow of death, whatever our condition, what does he say? I will fear no evil. Do you see that? I mean, that's the response. I will fear no evil. That's a bold declaration. I will fear no evil. Why? Evil's there. 
Evil's around. Even evil is standing at the gate, right? We see it every day, don't we? So why isn't he afraid? Look at the second half of verse 4 again. What does he say? For you are with me. Please don't miss that. As I was thinking about that reality this week, I, I remembered having, remembered as a child, like having bad dreams or nightmares. You, I mean, I think, I don't think I'm unique in that. I'm pretty sure. I'm not a very creative person. Like, I don't have a great imagination. And so if I had nightmares, I'm thinking basically everybody grew up having bad dreams and nightmares. Um, but I remember like being terrified. And, and I know everyone didn't have parents like I had growing up. And, and I'm sorry for that, honestly. Um, but when I would call in the night, in the darkness, in my fear, in that terror, when I would call out, my mama would come running. And she'd walk in the door, right? And, and come over to me. And that's, that's really all it took to vanquish the nightmare. I mean, have you ever thought about that? That all it took was the presence of mom walking into the room and the nightmare was gone. The bad dream evaporated. There's something powerful about that. Never forget, please never forget that there is something powerful in just being present. And that's what David is recognizing here in Psalm 23. It's that life with the Lord means never being alone. But there's more to it than that too. It's not just that God is present. It's not just that God is near, as beautiful as that is, right? That God would draw near to us. That's an incredible thing, but there's more to it. It's that it's also that the Lord is engaged. Like he's not just there present, but he's engaged, right? He's in the fight. He says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And then what does he say? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You see, this is more than casual presence, It's not God sitting in the bleachers of your life, just sort of watching from the stands as you fight the battles in front of you. He's not just clapping for you. No, he's he's there. Here's what he is. He's there in the arena with you. This is where God comes to me. He didn't come in as a spectator and watch you go through the mess. He comes and steps into the mess with you. He's engaged. And listen, the obvious connection for us as, as we sit here today, right, in 2022, hearing about the Lord being with us, it's natural for us. It should be natural for us to look at the incarnation. Right? It should be natural for us as we sit here today to look at Jesus, right? The one who's called Emmanuel or God with us. That, that John 1.14 picture that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, what we know is that in Christ, God has come to walk the darkest valley in our place. Like the true darkest valley. That's the, that's the gospel. That's the picture we see in Jesus, that God the Son endured the cross. There's no darker valley than that. That he endured the cross of suffering and death in our place. That he took the judgment of our sin on himself. That he, how's it say? That he drank the cup of wrath for us. It's like the hymn says, I love this hymn. It says, bearing sin and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, and then he cries out. We're not good criers in the PCA. We're not, Presbyterians don't like to cry out anything. We whisper a lot of stuff. But he cries out, hallelujah, what a savior. Okay, so Jesus comes and he takes our sin upon himself. The one who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
But that's not all, because Hebrews 7.25 says that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So here's what that means. It means that Jesus right now, even in his resurrected glory, even in heaven right now, he's not sitting on the throne watching it play out like we binge watch Netflix. He's not. He is actively engaged in your life today. Sorry, or Disney Plus or Hulu or whatever, all the other things you were streaming, okay? He's not, that's not him. God's not sitting there watching your life play out. Go, man, I wonder how this is going to end up. Commercial break, running to get popcorn, wondering what's going to happen next. Y'all are like, what's a commercial? I know. There was a day when you had to wait for like three minutes to see what was going to happen. Now he's not sitting there passive, but he's actively making intercession. You cannot passively intercede for someone. It's an active and dynamic thing that God is doing, that Jesus, as God the Son, is doing for us right now. He's not lounging on the throne, but he's active in our lives. And the way David says it here, looking at the active presence of the Lord in his life, is that your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is the holy hand of our good shepherd at work in our lives right now. The rod, the rod is used to fight off enemies. That's what the rod was, as the weapon of a shepherd. The staff is to lead and guide us on the safe path. These are the tools of the shepherd to actively protect and provide for his sheep. It's what he uses to lead us to those green pastures and still waters. God doesn't just point us on the way and hope that we somehow figure it out. But he walks with us, leading us like the blind, correcting us, sometimes sometimes corralling us. Now we need to acknowledge, here's something we need to acknowledge. The vast majority of us, we don't live anywhere near any pastures. I mean, maybe you do. It's, it's possible that you do. We actually have a pasture fairly close to us. It has horses, barns, beautiful. It's brand new. They just built it. It's fantastic. You'd want to go in there and take pictures, but, you, but there's, also, there's also a pretty solid fence around that pasture keeping us from going in and lying in it. So here's the idea. Following the metaphor of the shepherd, it's that, it's that we are sheep, right? That's the, that's the obvious metaphor. We are the sheep, and the green pasture for the sheep is a place of both rest and restoration, The still waters are the place of nourishment and refreshment. And and there's clearly a spiritual reality that that David is getting at here. So so where does God feed us? Yes, we are fed physically. Okay, yeah, everyone in here has been fed physically. He provides for us in those temporal things. He answers the prayer that we prayed, give us this day our daily bread. But, But how about spiritually? Where are we nourished spiritually? Where are we refreshed? I promise you it's not just going to be here. Like if this 70 minutes a week is all you're counting on for your entire spiritual nourishment, you are going to go hungry. There are 168 hours in the week. One out of 168 will not do it. It can't. If that's what you expect of me, if that's what you expect of the elders or this church, I I love you. You're going to be hungry. You're going to be thirsty. If you're looking at us saying every week, I'm going to give you one hour, 70 minutes. We, we, We really do aim for 70 minutes. Like really, if you were here last week, you're like, that is a lie. Um, 
or the week before that, sorry. Um, We're working on that, okay? But if you're just counting on us to feed you spiritually, I love you enough to tell you I'm gonna let you down. Like you're going to be starving. Now, where does he nourish us? It's in his word. It's in his word that he speaks. It's in his word that he leads us. It's in his word that he corrects us. It's in his word that he reminds us of this fundamental truth that with the Lord, you are never alone. And to drive that home, I love this. He changes the metaphor just a little bit. Look at at verse five. He says this, he says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. And he says this, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. At the end of the day, even with all of our missteps, right? even with all of our failings, even when we wander off and he has to come and bring us back, what does God do? You see it in verse five. What does God do for us? He invites us to dine with him. He invites us to dinner. As I was reading this psalm again this week, I was reminded of that scene on the beach with Jesus and his disciples in John 21. Are you familiar with that? It's after his resurrection, okay? He is alive, blew their minds with that one, right? He comes back to life. Thomas is touching stuff to make sure. And then what do they do? Jesus goes away for a bit and they, and if you remember, they go fishing. So in the idea is that, man, they've kind of gone back to their old life. They've kind of, they've kind of moved on Beyond that, and so they're out there fishing, not catching any fish, so they're not great at their job. And you remember what Jesus does? Like he wanders out onto the beach and shouts at them from the shoreline, do you have any fish? And I love their answer. It's one word, no. And if you've ever been fishing and never caught anything, that hits you in your soul. Like you know what it's like to get up super early, go out in the boat, you're sweaty, you're cold, you're wet, you're all the different things, and to have to say, yeah, we didn't catch anything. That's a bad, bad day. And what is, you remember what Jesus tells them? I love, I mean, they're not in a massive ship, right? This isn't like Alaskan crab fishing, okay? They're in a little boat that's smaller than this platform and about as wide as this podium. And he says, do this. Throw the nets on the right side of the boat. Like, that's it. That net's going to the same water, isn't it? I mean, like, let's just be realistic here. There's not like, oh, go to the coast of Egypt and you'll find some. No, no, it's right here. I did that because Mediterranean, not because we're close to Egypt. Sorry. No. He says, throw it on the right side of the boat and you will catch some fish. And so they try it. And sure enough, they catch fish, right? And this is a a miracle, There's no logical explanation for it. They catch some fish. And Peter, right, he gets it now. He gets it. He jumps out of the boat. Actually, he put on his robe to jump into the boat because he's like, I'm not coming back. Jumps in the robe, swims to shore, and and Jesus meets him there. And then the others eventually get there too. John's like, he won that race, I guess. Um, I love that scene. Do you remember what Jesus does next? After that whole thing plays out, do you remember what Jesus says? He says this, come and have some breakfast. 
come and have some breakfast. He prepares a table for them right there on the beach. This is the grace of God at work, even in what seemed just like a mundane Tuesday. It's the love of God expressed in the simplicity of a meal. And in that moment, Jesus reminds us of his never forsaking love for his people, even, even when they turn, even when they wander, even when they run off the path. He reminds of his love for us. Every time we baptize a covenant child here, uh, we give them a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the chorus of that book is this sort of theme that runs throughout it. And it's this statement about the nature of our relationship with God. Sally Lloyd-Jones calls it, he calls it uh, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. You see, it's that life with God means never being forsaken. It means never being given up on. It means never being turned loose. This is the picture we have of the Lord here in Psalm 23. It's the picture Psalm 23 gives us of Jesus, right? It's a picture of the gospel for us. And it is good. As I've spent more time in Psalm 23 this week, um, I became convinced that part of the beauty of Psalm 23 is its familiarity. That's not something I needed to be afraid of. The familiarity of, of it is something good. I was, I was driving with a young, aspiring theologian the other day. And this song came on his playlist, and it was good, man. And I was like, I like that song. And Tucker said, so yeah, this is my, my son, the aspiring. He doesn't know that yet, but he's an aspiring theologian. Um, y'all mark that down. That's happening. Um, by the way, every Christian's a theologian, so that's, you know. Every person's a theologian. It just means study of God. I said, Tucker, I like this song. He said, yeah, this is a good song. And then he told me how it was like in some big movie, and then it was on some popular show. And he said, now everybody knows it. And I was like, I think he liked the idea that he knew a song that not everybody knew, you know. And then he said something pretty profound. And, 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 and then he told me I had to quote him, so I am. It was this profound moment where my 14-year-old says, that's how it is with all good things. Everybody, eventually everybody finds out about it. That's how it is with good things. Eventually everybody finds out about it. Listen to me. Psalm 23 is a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. And just like the boy said, beautiful things are meant to be shared. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you that with you we are never going to be without what we ultimately need. We are never going to be alone because you are with us by your abiding spirit. And Lord, that we will never be forsaken. That because of Christ's sacrifice for us on the cross, we can come to you with confidence, knowing that you will never, ever leave us. You will never turn, you will never run, you will never hide, but you will always be there and always welcome us to your table saying, come, come have some breakfast. Lord, help us to never forget that. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.